you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and if you'll open them to Matthew chapter 3. Today I want to talk to you about one of the strangest preachers that the world has ever seen. I've been a Christian now for almost 50 years. Not quite as old as Dave Sharon yet, but uh, almost 50 years. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, My father was a pastor, and in all those years, I met a lot of different Baptist preachers. When I was young, my father used to take me to conferences, and we would sit there for hour after hour after hour of preaching from many, many different preachers. And there were preachers who could tell a lot of jokes, and they could make you more interested in their jokes than they would in the Bible. There were preachers that um, were very solid and stayed, and they could go on for a long, long time. And even in the first part of their message, they could clear the worst insomniac in about 10 minutes of preaching. Our home had a lot of visits from preachers. I remember that we, when I was young, that we had preachers that came all the time. My dad was always willing to open up the house to preachers that were traveling through and missionaries and so forth. And I remember particularly there was a missionary that he was actually a home missionary it's what we called a home missionary he traveled around the united states and he would preach in many different places and he would go into just walk into bars and into restaurants and he would stand up and he'd give a gospel presentation he traveled around on a greyhound bus all of the time and and before he ever left on the bus he'd always go up to the driver and take the microphone out of the driver's hand say i have a few words that i'd like to say And so right there in that bus, he would begin to preach the gospel of Christ. I'd never met anybody like him before. Very strange man in some ways. I remember when he came to stay at our home that uh, he had two things that he absolutely required. He had to have a rocking chair in his room, and he had to have a glass of buttermilk every day. So I've met some strange preachers, but not really as one as strange as the one we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 3. Now, many of you already know who we're talking about. This is John the Baptist, and he was really a character. In fact, if he showed up on the doorstep of Berean Baptist Church today, our ushers would probably be a little bit hesitant about letting him in. And that's because he didn't dress like we think that people ought to dress. He didn't eat the same kinds of things that we eat. He didn't wear cologne. And he probably didn't smell as nice as most of us here. So he was just a plain old preacher with a very plain message. And we're going to read about and talk about him today. So if you'd stand with me as we look at God's Word in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to talk about this oddball preacher. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees, 
Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water and repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who've come today to hear your word. We ask you, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to the message this morning. Help us to see what John the Baptist preached and understand very clearly. It's the same message that needs to be preached today. Bless in the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John the Baptist truly was a very odd character. He didn't possess any of the qualities that we would think that would mark out a person who was very successful. John the Baptist had no bank accounts. He had no stock portfolio. He couldn't claim that he had been born into a high society family. He didn't live in a big house and in a gated community. But John the Baptist really had no outstanding talent that would ever commend him to us or to make us think that he was really anything that was great. So he has nothing at all, looking at his life and seeing where he lived and the things that he did, nothing that commends him at all. And yet Jesus said about him, made a very amazing statement about him in Matthew chapter 11, an outstanding statement, I might even say. He said, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And so that means that Abraham was not greater, Moses was not greater, David was not greater. No person in all the history of the world up until the time that Jesus came was greater than John the Baptist. And that is truly an outstanding statement, especially considering how the Jews revered Abraham and and Moses and David and all the prophets. And so to look at John the Baptist, you really, really wouldn't think that he was anything. Now just consider for a moment the description that we have of him in in verse number 4. Matthew said that he wore camel's hair. And he had a leather belt that held that on. Now, that wasn't a nice camel hair coat like we think of today. But this would be like killing a camel, gutting it, and then taking the hide and wrapping it around you. And that's what John the Baptist wore for clothes. John was a Nazarite, and that means that he had a very special vow to God. And one of the things that Nazarites couldn't do was they couldn't cut their hair. And so John the Baptist must have been a wild-looking fellow. Here he is draped in that camel's hide. He has long, stringy hair probably from living out there in the Judean wilderness. And so he was just maybe kind of a a scary fellow with with that hair, that dress, pieces of grasshopper between his teeth probably. You know, when we were in Israel last year, we were visiting one of the archaeological sites, and, and after we finished there, we were walking through a field that had some high grass, and uh, I saw this little critter there. If you'll show that to us, Jason. That was, uh, do we have it? It's supposed to be there, but it's not. Okay, maybe he can find that there, see, see what happened to it. But I found this uh, little grasshopper that uh, would be the same type of thing that, that John the Baptist would eat. And I'll tell you, when I looked at that and I held that in my hands, that that I was not tempted at all to put that into my mouth. And I don't know how John the Baptist fixed those things, but that's what he liked to eat. He liked to eat those grasshoppers. So John just really didn't have anything about him that would make us think that he was great. 
So what then was the big attraction about him? And here we have this man out there preaching in the wilderness. People are coming from all over the place, from towns all around the area, and they came to hear John the Baptist preach. What was the attraction? What were they looking for? And so why did why was there so much attention given to him? Well, he looked like something. He resembled something that they had learned from Old Testament prophecy. Now, let's look first of all today at John's ambition. His ambition was to maintain the highway. Now, there's an Old Testament prophecy that occurs in three separate places uh, regarding someone who would come just prior to the Messiah. And it was said that this particular person would prepare the way for his coming. Matthew quotes from uh, a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 3, and we read this, or from Isaiah rather, and and we read this in verse number 3 of Matthew's gospel here in this third chapter. It says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so it was John's ambition to fulfill that prophecy. This is what God had called him to do, to, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. So what is it then? He, called, he was called of God to ready the way. Now there was, again, much excitement about the ministry of John the Baptist. And that's because for over 400 years, there was not heard a voice of a prophet in all of Israel. From the closing of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, 400 years had passed and God had not spoken to anyone. God had not called a prophet out. And so there was really nobody who was speaking for God. Those last verses of Malachi in the Old Testament tell us that God would send a messenger. He would be like Elijah and he would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So then there are 400 years that pass. And all of a sudden, there's this guy out there in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and he's thundering with a message, and he's telling people, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is coming. The Messiah is here. And so they looked at him, and they thought, well, he looks like, he sounds like, he dresses like Elijah. And so this must be the one that God has sent to prepare the way the Messiah for him to come. And so there were many people that were drawn to John the Baptist preaching. And that day there was a a great famine for the word of God. And that's because the people for so long a time had not heard God speak. And so they weren't really ready for this message that that John brought them. So the people needed to be prepared. They needed to be sanctified. They needed to be purified. They needed to have their hearts right because the king of heaven was coming. They needed to be ready to meet the Messiah. And so John was there to prepare the way for Christ's coming. Now, back in the Bible times, the Roman Empire had spread nearly to the entire known world. One of the things that a king would do is he would conquer, the the emperor rather, he would conquer these different territories, and he would want to go visit those places that he had conquered. So he would send out an advance party, and this advance party had the job of just clearing the way making it easy for the emperor to travel there. And so they would begin to build new roads into these provinces that they had conquered. And many of you have probably heard uh, the saying, the king's highway. You've ever heard that before. It actually comes from this time period. And you can travel to Europe today, go go to Rome, for instance, and you can see parts of the Appian Way, that old highway that was built by the Romans. 
The Ignatian Way was a a highway that was built as an east-west route across the continent of Europe. And you can still see parts of that today. And so this advance party would go out there and they would clear the roads. they make everything ready or even make a new road for that person, for the emperor to come. And this is exactly what John's job was to do. He was to make a highway. It was a spiritual highway so that people would be ready to meet Jesus. Now, in, it was also his ambition, according to this prophecy, to remove all obstacles. John the Baptist's ministry is so important that all four of the gospel writers have something to say about his ministry. Luke continues the prophecy that Isaiah made concerning him. And Luke says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 5, quoting from Isaiah, "...every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways..." shall be made smooth. What does that mean? That Jesus needed a literal highway to walk on? That he needed somebody to clear things out for him, make an easy way for Jesus to travel from the northern part of Israel and Galilee down to Judea and other parts? Is that, that what he's talking about? Well, not at all. Of course, he's talking here about a spiritual highway. Now, when you build a literal highway, one of the things you do is you go out there and you cut through the mountains, you level the mountains, and you take the highway through there. You take all of that debris and all the things that have been dug out, and you begin to fill in the low places to make it easy for you to travel. Well, here is what John the Baptist was doing, not making a literal highway, but a spiritual one in which he began to clear out all of the obstacles that keep people away from Jesus. Now, in, in, in that time, there were so many things that were in the people's lives. The greatest obstacle, of course, that they had is the obstacle of sin. And the Bible says that sin had separated Israel from God. And still, folks, it, it's sin today that separates us from God. And so John the Baptist came to cut through all of that spiritual wickedness, all of this sin that keeps people away from the kingdom of heaven. Now, here is the condition of every single person in the world today. Every one of us has been born with a hole in our soul. And it's a hole that's been created by sin. There's a huge empty space that's there. It's devoid of any righteousness. There is no goodness at all. There's nothing holy about us. Every person has that empty space. It's barren. It needs to be filled up. And the only person that can do that is Jesus Christ. You can't fill it by yourself. You'll always have that empty place without him. There's nothing you can do with it. As much as you try and as earnest as you want to be, you can't fill it. Only Jesus Christ can fill that up for you, and he's the only one that can make you fit for God's kingdom. And so when Jesus comes into your life, what he does is he blasts away all of the mountains of arrogance and, and the egotism that's in you. He takes away the, the rough edges that are off of your life. He smooths all those things down. Every crooked practice that you have, every corruption in your life, only Jesus is able to straighten all of that out. Now, Luke had something to say more about John the Baptist and, the, and just the personal message that he gave. I mean, there were so many things that were going on among those people that John the Baptist said that there are some changes that have to be made. There are practices here of selfishness and dishonesty. These things need to be done away with. And it was John's ambition to clear all of that out and to point the people to Jesus Christ. Well, how did John do that? Well, next, let's look at John's activity. 
What is it that he did? Well, he came to preach a real method of salvation. Now, again, as I said, there was this real famine for God's word at that time. Uh, During the interim period between the Old and the New Testaments, there had arisen two very powerful religious sects. Now, there were actually three of them at that time. The third one did not have as much influence as the other two. But these two powerful religious sects arose, and they were operative among the people at that time, and they had a great deal of influence. Now, these are the people that we know as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew introduces us to them, those two groups, in verse number 7. Now, the common people, they came out to hear John the Baptist. They came to his baptism They recognize that the message that he was preaching, here's something true, it's something that we need. And so they came, they repented of their sins, and they uh, followed John the Baptist's teaching. But the strange thing about it is that we find these particular people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the nemesis of Jesus and the apostles throughout their ministry. And so why were the Pharisees and the Sadducees there? I mean, they're a really strange sight that they come to hear John. So John, seeing them, not just common people, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people, they came to him. And so what did John do? Well, he preached a particular message to them. First of all, it was the preaching of repentance. One of the defining characteristics of the prophets was that they preached repentance. And the reason that Old Testament prophets were not welcomed in their day and they weren't popular is because they continued to preach the idea of repentance. Well, what does that mean, to repent? It means to turn around. It means that your life's going in the wrong direction. You need to change directions. You're going the wrong way. And so you need to make an about face and go in a different direction. So repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. It's a different outlook on the way that you think you are and what your life is all about. And the Bible teaches that repentance is the only way of salvation. It says you must repent of your sins. So that means that you understand that your life is wrong. Something needs to be done about this, and so you desire to change from the way that you live. Now, repentance is not popular preaching. It wasn't popular when John was preaching, and it's not popular today. Now, John was not preaching this sweet, sissy message that we hear in many churches today where the church says and people says, the preacher says, something good is going to happen to you. You know, people come into the churches and that's what they say. Just trust Jesus. Something good is going to happen to you. Noah preached repentance. You know what he said? He said, something bad's going to happen to you. He said, if you don't repent, something definitely bad's going to happen to you. And Noah preached for repentance for over 100 years. And when there was no repentance, something bad happened. God sent a flood. He consumed them all. He drowned everyone except Noah and his family. Noah's message wasn't popular. People ridiculed him. But you know, the wonderful thing about God is God is slow to anger. And so God waited. He let Noah preach for a hundred years. And God waited and he gave time for people to repent. But when they wouldn't repent, the flood came. Jonah also preached repentance. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh with the message, I'm okay and you're okay. No, Jonah preached that you need to repent. And there was a difference, though, between Jonah's preaching and Noah's preaching. And that was they didn't repent when Noah preached, but they did when Jonah preached. And so what happened? God sent a blessing on the people because they repented. And then you remember Peter also preached repentance. 
On the day of Pentecost, he preached a very scathing message. And when he was through, the people said, what shall we do? They were troubled about it. What shall we do? And Peter said, just feel good about yourself. I mean, look who you are. You need self-esteem. Look at your self-worth. Here, buy my latest self-help book. This will be what you need. No, Peter said to them, you had better repent. Now, friends, America has gone too long with these sweet, syrupy messages that we hear today with, of self-esteem and self-worth and how God is only interested in one thing. God's interested to make you rich and make you satisfied the way that you are. And so too long we've heard this preaching of pseudo-Christianity that tells us that immoral lifestyles are okay. It's all right because God loves everybody. He doesn't care what you do. The message of the Bible is repent or ye shall all likewise perish. And so preachers need to stand in the pulpit today and we need to be preaching about things than saying that homosexuality is wrong. Abortion is wrong in this country. Adultery is wrong. Premarital sex is wrong. God's not pleased with any of that. And he says you better repent of it. You see, it doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter if you believe you got it all figured out. What matters is what God thinks about things. And we have one place to go that tells us what God thinks about things, and it's found right here in this book. And so the Word of God says, without equivocation, you must repent of your sins. Now, that's not popular. People don't like it. You won't win friends and influence people with a message like this. But God still says you must repent. Where do we start with this? Well, I think that we start right here. God's people have some repenting to do. There's some things that are going on in our lives that we need to repent of. We can't go out preaching a message of repentance to other people, tell them they must repent when our lives are not holy. How can we do that? We need to repent ourselves. Now, we've got this idea, and you hear it again in so many churches today. Well, I don't think it's right to do that, but if somebody wants to do it, who am I to criticize? It's time that we stood up and we said, this is right and that is wrong. See, John the Baptist wasn't trying to impress anybody. He wasn't trying to water down this message to keep the crowds coming. He said to them, you need to turn around. Change directions in your life because you're, the way that you're going will lead you right to the destruction of hell. Now, let's go back to the Pharisees and Sadducees for just a minute. I don't have time today to discuss all of their beliefs. We'll certainly get into it more as we go through Matthew But I could say about them that these are the religious elite. These are self-righteous people, and and they love just the outward trappings of religion. So they wore their robes, and they had all the proper dress. They were pious, and they were holy, or at least they thought that they were. You know, if I could compare them to religion today, these are the clerics. These are the people who uh, like their fancy clothes and step in the pulpit with their robes and wear their backwards collar whenever they preach. And they like the stained glass windows that you have in the church and the ornate furnishings. They love the idols and the trinkets and all the little things that you use in worship. And so, it's so odd. It is just so odd that these are the people who came to hear John the Baptist. I mean, here's a man, he's the antithesis of everything that they stand for. John the Baptist cared nothing for religious clothing. He didn't wear a miter on his head and beads that around his waist. He came preaching in an old camel hide. I mean, he didn't get up there and say the Eucharist and consecrate the wine in the Mass because he didn't drink wine. He was a Nazareth. 
a Nazarite rather. And, and, and wine, that wasn't his preferable thing to put in his mouth. It was the grasshoppers. He liked that a lot better. And so when they approached him, he didn't kiss their ring and bow down and kiss their big toes. He told those self-righteous people, you need to repent too. He said, you're a bunch of vipers. You're a bunch of religious charlatans and you need to repent. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that message. I mean, you're going to tell us that as holy and righteous as we are, as good as we are, all the works that we do and all the things that we do for God, that you're going to tell us that we're as bad as tax collectors and prostitutes? Are you telling us that we need to repent? And so you're saying then, John, that all these things that we do are worthless. All the good things that we do, we think we're doing for God. They're worthless. Is that what you're saying, John? And John said, you betcha that's what I'm saying. You need to repent. And he said, bring some of the fruit of the Spirit that show, that shows that you have repented. Now let me just stop there for just a moment. And let me say that real repentance always results in a demonstrated change. It's a change from sin to righteousness. Repentance is not remorse that you got caught because you did something. And repentance is not... uh, uh, feeling bad because you you, you have to suffer consequences of bad behavior. Repentance is when you understand that you have offended the holiness of a mighty God. Repentance is deep sorrow when you realize that you have been just a serious affront to God's righteousness. And so you have a desire to change. You have a desire to be washed clean in the blood of Jesus. See, you can't claim that you've, been repent- that you've repented and that you're saved unless that repentance and belief results in a radical change from what you were before. And even more than that, I think the true repentance is when a person realizes who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and he comes to him and says, I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. True repentance will always result in Jesus Christ being the one that you follow, that that's the person you want to go wherever he goes. Now, people were disgusted by this preaching of repentance. They couldn't believe it, so they became indignant about it. John knew exactly where they were coming from. He knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, we're children of Abraham. We're God's people. We're God's chosen people. We're the children of Abraham. We have... So much self-worth. We're, we're children of God by our heritage. And John knew exactly what they were thinking. So he said, think not to say within yourselves that we are Abraham to our father or have Abraham. He said, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to make up children to Abraham. In other words, God can as easily grow a crop of new children if he wants as to call you the children of Abraham. He can raise up those who have really been justified by faith in God. And are not dependent upon all the works that they do. And friends, do you know that is the exact message of the gospel today? You must repent. And John the Baptist preached repentance. It was a method that was good then, and it's the method that's good today. And then, John's method was also the practice of baptism. Now, next week, we're going to get into baptism a little bit more, and and, uh, we'll, we'll understand better, hopefully, why you need to be baptized But here's a case where John the Baptist said, I will not baptize you unless you've really repented. Show me that you have some real fruits of regeneration and then I'll baptize you. Now, some people have that all mixed up. They want to be baptized to be regenerated, baptized to get saved, but that's not the way it works. Baptism is not for unsaved people. 
It's for people who have already repented, people who have trusted Christ to save you, save them. And so this New Testament order is always the same. It's the way we find it. Repentance, faith, trust in Christ, and then your baptism. You see, when you repent and you've changed your mind about your sin and yourself, then there's only one place that you can turn, and that's to Jesus Christ. He's the opposite of sin. He's the opposite of your wicked lifestyle. Now, there's some who say, well, no, that's not right. I mean, the only thing that you really have to do is you just need to believe. And, you know, that is popular among people who have taken John the Baptist's name. Even in some of our Baptist churches, this is what they say. No, you don't really have to repent. All you have to do is believe. But that's not what John the Baptist said, and it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you must repent and believe. And then when you've done that, you're to give a demonstration that you have repented and you have believed. And that's what you do in baptism. Now, you see, baptism is a, is a public announcement that you've repented of your sins and you believed in Christ. One of the things that I think that we have done in the modern church is that we've really done baptism a disservice, an unintended disservice, I think. And that is because we have a baptistry right over here in our church building. And so whenever we baptize people, the only people that are able to see that are people that are in the church. It's just people that are right here. You get to see a person being baptized. I remember when I was younger, when my dad was pastoring, that we would go down to the creek to baptize people. And so we would go down a little two-lane highway there that was on the way to the church, and we'd stop there at a bridge that was over the creek. And people would pull their cars off to the side of the road, and, and cars from that church would be lining both sides of the road and made it practically impossible for anybody to get through. And so everybody that was traveling the road had to stop. And they would notice that Ephesus Baptist Church, the little Baptist church up there was having a baptism, and all the people would stop and watch that. You see, that's what baptism is. It's a public confession of your faith. So we, we are baptized to show people we have repented and we believed, and we want to tell everybody about that. So John the Baptist practiced baptism, didn't do it to save anybody it's for people who had already repented and trusted the one for whom he had prepared the way now let's go on here because next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about baptism a little bit more extensively when we talk about jesus being baptized but here the third thing i want to show you today is john's announcement and his announcement is about the ministry of christ we have the whole gospel of matthew to talk about the ministry of jesus because that's what the rest of this book is all about John's baptism is the beginning of the ministry of Christ. He's preparing the way. And so John baptized Jesus, and that's when Jesus then went into his three years of public ministry. Now, John clearly delineates in this scripture two aspects of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is a dividing line between two types of people. Now, friends, there are only two types of people that are in the world, and that's the saved and the lost. And this scripture has something to say about both of them. So what was Jesus' ministry? Well, first of all, it was to justify those who will repent. Now, John was just a remarkable man because he had every opportunity to, to lift himself up. Uh, he, he could have taken credit for his ministry and say it was all him. But instead, John spoke out in humility. Verse 11 of our text says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
So John said, I'm sent to prepare the way for someone else. And he said, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. In those days, it was the job of a slave to bend down, untie the shoes of his master, his sandals, take those off, and to wash his feet. And John said, I'm not even worthy to do what a slave does. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now, John said, here's the one who's coming. The Messiah comes, and when he comes, he will baptize you with something else. He will immerse you into the life of God. He will submerge your life and bathe you in the righteousness of Christ. And he'll do that so that you can stand justified before God. He'll do that because he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, the justification that that I'm speaking of here comes from repentance from sin and faith that's placed in the only one who can save. And the result of that is the final gathering of God's people when Jesus comes to take them all home to heaven. Now, that's what the beginning of verse 12 is about. If you'll look there, it says, "...whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner." Now, maybe we don't understand the reference there very well, but this is actually a reference to the way that a farmer would separate the kernels of wheat in the head from the protective sheath in the stalk. And so he would take his wheat and we'd put it out on a threshing floor. He would spread it out there, and then uh, he would take an ox, he would bring that in, and that ox would pull a millstone around over that wheat, and it began to break all of that down. And then the farmer would take all of that, he'd throw it up into the air, and with a fan, he would let the lighter particles of the chaff blow away, and the heavier, heavier particles of the grain would settle back down to the threshing floor. Then what he would do is gather up all of the grain and take it and put it into the barn. Now, of course, that represents those who are redeemed. The wheat, the good wheat, represents those that have been redeemed, and he takes them into the barn, into heaven. But the chaff that separates from the wheat... That represents those that are lost. So good grains taken to the barn, that's symbolic of Christ gathering up people and taking them into heaven. So these are people who have repented of their sins. They have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They trust him as the Savior. And so now they're justified. And so in the eyes of God, they are righteous. And now they have eternal life. But the opposite is true for the others. It's Christ's ministry to justify those who will repent. But it's also his ministry to judge those who won't repent. Now, there are three powerful references in this scripture about Christ's judgment. And this is really unmistakable in its conclusion. The first one we find in verse number 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore... Every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. At the end of the harvest, a farmer would inspect all of his fruit trees. And if there were trees that weren't producing and trees that had branches on them that were dead and didn't bear fruit, then he would gather all of that up, he'd put it into a pile, and then he would burn it. Now that's the first picture of those who will not repent. The second one we find in verse number 11. He says, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, baptism there is a reference to the salvation of those who believe. But there's a dividing line here, and that's where he says, and with fire. In other words, some are going to be saved and others will be lost. 
Uh, many people think that that's a reference to the day of Pentecost when something that appeared to be fired came and, and settled on the, on the believers, the, the people that were in the church. But this is really talking about the difference between the saved and the lost. Some, are, some receive salvation through the Holy Spirit and others go into the fire. So there's a division here between saved and lost. Then we have a third picture of judgment in verse number 12. He says, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. Now, we've already discussed that part. That refers to those that are justified and saved. These are people that have repented. But go on. What does he say? But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, the chaff represents those who will not believe. They will not repent, and they are going to be burned up. Now, do you notice a common word in all three references? Fire in verse number 10, fire in verse number 11, fire in verse number 12. Now, everyone here, you you can read this as well as I can. And so, we can all be learned, intelligent commentators today on the Scripture. So, what is the judgment that's going to come on all of those who will not repent? Well, here it is, and you can write it on your listening sheet. Hell is the literal fire of God's judgment. Now, do you think that John would go out here... And he would yell, fire, 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 when there is no fire. Do you know what happens when you yell fire in a crowded room and you cause a panic? You know what happens? Well, they're going to come and take you away. Ask the fire department what happens when you do that. They'll take you away. So John is out here among a whole multitude of people. And three times he tells them, there's fire, there's fire, there is fire. He's not using metaphors here. Now, we notice that when he talks about the saved and the lost, he uses a metaphor. He talks about wheat and chaff. He talks about trees. But there is no metaphor for the fire. And that's because this fire is literal. I mean, as as much as people don't want to believe in hell today, as much as people don't want to preach it, hell is a real place. And there are too many references in the Bible spoken by John the Baptist, spoken by the apostles, spoken even by Jesus Christ himself to have us believe that hell is not a real place. But you know, John, he just wasn't sophisticated enough yet to know that, oh, you could change the word of God if you want to. No, John said, if you don't repent, if you don't turn around and come to Jesus, you will burn in the everlasting fires of hell. Now, friends, I can't do anything less than preach the very same message. That's what God's given me to preach. I mean, maybe I'm common. Maybe I'm not sophisticated enough yet. We don't have 35,000 people that come to our church. Don't even have 1,000 who come. But the ones who do come, you're going to get the truth of God's word because we're not going to change this. This is what the Bible says. It says you must repent of your sins. You must trust Jesus Christ or straight to hell. That's where you're going to go. But we don't want to stop with that because John the Baptist's message was also... You do not have to die and go to hell. The whole message of John the Baptist is to tell them, there is someone coming who can change your life. There is someone coming who can turn everything around so that you don't have to go to hell when you die. You can go to heaven. And his message was to preach Jesus Christ. If he was here today, he would sing it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow. That's what we have. Just plain preaching from a plain old preacher. He said, repent ye, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And friend, it's the same message we must preach today. You must repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to gather around your word. Lord, what a powerful message that John the Baptist preached. He never pulled any punches. He never tried to make it easy on people. He said, here is the truth of God's word. You must repent of your sins. And if you do not repent, then you'll spend eternity in hell. And that's the same message that we must preach today. And then, Lord, we want everyone to understand that Jesus Christ came into this world to deliver us from our sins. If we but repent and believe in him, we can be saved and we can be gathered into that barn, into the garner, just like the word of God says. We pray that you might bless this invitation today. Speak to some heart. Help them to realize they need you as Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.